Well, uh, I think I mentioned everything I wanted to mention. In Psalm 70, that's where we're going to be this morning. And if you're inclined to take notes on the little insert that you have there for notes, you can just scratch out the title that is there, and we'll come back to that next week, Lord willing. The title I'm going to call this is just a desperate prayer for desperate times. A desperate prayer for desperate times. And let me read the psalm, and some of you may know that this psalm, the short five verses from this psalm, are nearly identical with the end of Psalm 40, earlier in the Psalter, at an earlier time in David's life. And there's significance to that, but this is echoing uh, almost verbatim the end of Psalm 40. And so uh, let me go ahead and read this psalm, and then I'll lead us in prayer, and we'll get into what the Lord has for us this morning. But let's hear the unchanging word of God first given through David a few thousand years ago. Psalm 70 at the beginning. To the choir master of David for the memorial offering. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, Yahweh, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, Aha, aha, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Yahweh, do not delay. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will never pass away. Let me lead us in prayer. O Father, as you are the one who has given this word through your servant David, that ultimately points to and anticipates your work in and through the Lord Jesus Christ and the secure hope found in him. May you be pleased to speak to us now through what you have spoken. May your spirit attend to your word and enable me in the preaching of your word that all of us would hear not my voice, but your voice. And as you are the one who searches into hearts, as you are the one who knows the depth of who we are, may you be pleased to accomplish in us and through us all that you desire for our good and blessing in you in Christ and for your glory in us. We pray that you would do this to that end in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, I'm sure that you have heard of the little town of Haleyville, Alabama. And I'm sure that you know that in that small town on February 16th, 1968, some uh, little more than 55 years ago, an historic phone call took place that has impacted every single one of us today. Because in this town and on that date, Alabama State Senator Rankin Fight made the first ever 911 emergency phone call. This was the culmination of much work and legislation that had proceeded for many, many months. 
And that historic phone call set in motion, of course, the 911 system of emergency communication that is now instinctive and instantaneous for every single one of us. I no doubt that many of you children here have already been taught by your parents that if there's any kind of an emergency, uh, that you call 911 to alert the appropriate authorities, be they police, medical, or fire, to call 911. And of course, with the 911 system, the working assumption is that when you call, real help is on the other end of the line. And when you call, that real help will soon facilitate whatever is necessary to get real help to you for whatever the need may be. And so you call 911 because you implicitly assume that you'll get the help you need, that your cry will be answered, that someone will urgently do something to help your need. Well, in a far greater way and in the midst of far greater dangers, King David in Psalm 70 is pleading for God to help him in a desperate crisis. This is a 911 call, if you will. And perhaps even more intensely, it's, it's David crying out, Mayday! Mayday! that internationally recognized cry of distress when there is imminent, devastating danger. That's what David is doing here in Psalm 70. There is a desperate crisis that he's experiencing, and he is seeking the Lord with all of his heart. And God has given us this psalm to teach us who are his people how to plead with him, how to seek him, how to pour out our soul to him in the midst of any desperate crisis that we might find ourselves in. And so the big idea of this psalm is pretty self-evident. It's sort of captured even a little bit in the title there, but just to tweak it a little bit, we could just say it this way. Here's the main thought of, of this whole psalm. Desperate times call for desperate prayer. Desperate times call for desperate prayer. And of course, that's a play off of a colloquialism that we're familiar with. Desperate times call for desperate measures. Well, for God's people, we don't need desperate measures. We need desperate prayer for our all-sufficient God to meet us and help us and accomplish what he purposes in us and through us. So that's the main point of this psalm. There's a desperateness for God to act and for God to act urgently, quickly, immediately. And that's what David is praying for. Desperate times, desperate prayer. So God is teaching us through David's experience as revealed in this psalm how to plead with him amid a crisis, amid a desperate situation. And David's example provokes us and teaches us how to urgently plead with God with three different pleas that unfold in this prayer. So that's what we want to look at, three different pleas. And I want you to notice, even at the outset, that there is obviously for David a personalness, a very individual, personal reality of what he's experiencing, but it is deeply intertwined with a corporate recognition of his belonging to the people of God. And we'll see that as we move through and look at these three different pleas. So that's the focus of, of what we're looking at and what we see in Psalm 70. Here's the first plea 
It's this. Plead for God to help you now. Plead for God to help you now. This is what we see in verse 1. He says, make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, and whenever you see Lord with all capital letters, that is a, uh, a reference to God's covenant name, Yahweh. So he's calling God by his covenant name, his name of promise, his name of faithfulness. He says, O Yahweh, make haste to help me. Now, we don't know the specific, specific details of his situation, but he's clearly under siege. He's clearly in the midst of a desperate crisis. And notice that he doesn't run away from the crisis. What does he do? He runs to God. He runs to God. And this is reflected in so many other Psalms as well. And more literally, uh, if we were going to translate this literally, David is saying, God, deliver me, Yahweh, to my help, hurry, hurry. There's an urgency. There's a desperateness. He's overwhelmed. He has nowhere else to turn. He's saying, God, I need your help. I need your help now. And notice in the psalm that this is what bookends the entire psalm, this sense of urgency. At the very beginning, he says, make haste. And then at the very end of the psalm, at the end of verse 5, O Lord, O Yahweh, do not delay. So this sense of urgency absolutely floods the psalm. It permeates the entire psalm. And so it's an urgent, desperate plea where David is begging for a speedy and a decisive response from God. It's raw. It's urgent. It's not candy-coated with a lot of eloquent language. It is a cry. It is a scream that he is seeking the Lord. He's in crisis, and he has no resources for help. Now, Psalm 70 finds itself embedded within a series of psalms in which this same thought is echoed. In other words, in Psalm 69, which precedes it, which is a longer uh, unfolding of David's plea and his burden, he also echoes this sense of urgency. Look in verse 16 of uh, chapter 69 there. He says, Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from me, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. If you look at the very beginning of Psalm 69, David gives a vivid picture of, of how he's feeling and what he's experiencing. Look there at verse 1, and I'll read just a little bit. He says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. And no doubt the imagery that he's using there of a flood and of being buried in the flood and in the mire is, is, is reflecting back on that global flood that God brought when he brought judgment upon the entire earth and destroyed everyone and everything save Noah and his family and a whole lot of animals. David's using that imagery to speak of what he's experiencing and how he's feeling and how he's feeling overwhelmed and, and helpless. And so he's crying for urgency. And then this is reflected again in Psalm 70, but then over in chapter 71, in the next psalm that follows. And I'd encourage you, even this afternoon or at some point, read through all of these together because there's a succession of the development of David's experience. But in Psalm 71, look at verses 12 and 13. 
He says, oh God, be not far from me. Oh my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed with scorn and disgrace. May they be covered who seek my hurt. He's facing enemies. He's facing opposition. He's, he's under siege, but he's pleading with God for a desperate response. Now, this is most likely happening near the end of David's life. In fact, in chapter 71, he makes reference to his old age and how God had met him when he was younger. That helps us understand the significance of Psalm 70 uh, being almost verbatim a copy of what we find at the end of Psalm 40, which was many years earlier in his life. Most likely the context of Psalm 40 earlier in his life when he's under siege is when he was being harassed and hated and chased and sought uh, to be murdered by Saul. In Psalm 70, now near the end of his life and with the surrounding Psalms of 69, 70, 71, and even into 72, um, it's most likely near the end of his life when he's, when he's facing opposition even from one of his sons who had revolted against him, Absalom, and who's pursuing him and seeking to destroy him. And what's significant for us in understanding that, beloved, is that it is a part of the life of the people of God from beginning to end on this earth that we face opposition and that we face distress and that we face trouble and that we face enemies. And as we're going to see, our enemies are not ultimately flesh and blood. They're spiritual enemies, Satan and the demons who work against the people of God because he hates God. He hates Jesus. But it's a normal part of Christian experience. And we go through one trial, and then God in his wisdom brings another trial, and often more. And sometimes those even intensify as we get older. And yet as David sought the Lord at the beginning of his life and near the end of his life, so that's what the Lord calls us to, to always seek him and always cry out to him. And so that's the first plea that we see from David, a plead for God to help us now, help you now, this urgency. Years ago, when we lived in Southern California, some of you have probably heard me tell this story, uh, but when we lived in Southern California, I think we had maybe two of our four kids at the time, and we lived in a single-story home, and Lori was in the kitchen on one end of the house, and I'm in the back bedroom on the other end of the house, and uh, our kitchen had the, the kitchen sink and the window that looked out to the side of the house, and I knew that she was in there working. I'm in the back of the house. All of a sudden, I hear this blood-curdling scream from her like I have never heard before, and I have never heard since praise God. I've never heard, I mean, it was just like, it was unbelievable. She just screamed at the top of her lungs. And of course I shoot out there. I'm imagining that some guy has popped up in the window and he's getting ready to attack her or whatever the case is. I'm ready to go to, you know, spring through the window and, 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 and go into mode to take care of things. But actually what had happened is she had tried to kill a mosquito with a fly swatter and it didn't die all the way. And it was kind of there in the sink and it just sort of startled her. So very understandable thing. Could happen to anybody. But uh, anyways, I had, it took me quite a while to kind of come down from that adrenaline rush. But you get the sense. When there is something that is terrifying, something that is scary, there's an impulse, or just a reaction that we scream. That's what David is doing. And he's pleading to God for help now. He's crying out to the throne of grace. Jesus did this often in his life. We're told in Hebrews in the New Testament in chapter 5 verse 7 that Jesus' life was characterized by loud cries and tears throughout his ministry. 
We're told in the Gospels that frequently during his ministry, he would find desolate places where he could go to pray and seek his father. And of course, we know most intensively in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he poured out his soul before the Lord, before he went to the cross, he was in agony. And from a human perspective, he knew what the cross meant most fully, let alone the physical horror of it, but being separated from God, bearing our sins and all the sins of those who would trust him. And he knew what all of that meant. And he's crying out to God. And God meets him. And God helps him. And he follows through with what he know God, knows God has called him to do. The Apostle Paul in his ministry frequently speaks, especially in the book of 2 Corinthians, of his desperateness, of his weakness, of his perplexities, of his, of his need for help. And I'll just read one portion at the very beginning of 2 Corinthians in chapter 1. And this is a theme then, a focus that just permeates the whole book. But listen to what Paul says, beginning in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 1. He says, We don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Have you ever been there? Despairing of life itself? He says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. He says, you must also help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. He knew the importance of prayer. He knew the importance of pleading for God to help now and soliciting the help of God's people to that end. A little bit later in chapter 4, he talks about the fact that that he and his co-workers are afflicted but not crushed. They're perplexed, but they're not driven to despair. They're persecuted, but they're not forsaken. They're struck down, but they're not destroyed. And then later in chapter 12, he talks about how he had come to know his own weakness with this thorn in the flesh that God had ordained. Paul pleaded that God would take it away, but God didn't take it away because it became an instrument of keeping Paul humble and learning to rely upon the sufficiency of God's grace. I don't know what kind of trials, what kind of troubles, what kind of distresses, what kind of burdens, what kind of things you might be facing now, but I have no doubt you're facing them. We all do in varying ways and in varying degrees at varying times. Maybe you're a child and there are certain things in your home that are hard and distressful, either with a parent or with a sibling or with something else going on. You know you can cry out to God for help. Maybe you're a student, as, as, as any student knows and experiences, whether you're in junior high, high school, college, whatever it may be, and, and finals are looming for those of you who are in college. It can be very stressful and distressing and fearful and anxious. Cry out to God. Ask his help. Seek his help. Maybe you're a mom. Maybe you're a dad, and there are particular things that are challenging financially, relationally, within the home, beyond the home, in the workplace, whatever it may be, there are stresses and challenges. Dear beloved brother and sister in Christ, if you are in Christ, if you are a believer in Christ, pour out your soul to God. Cry to him immediately and cry to him urgently. Cry to him for help. It begs the question for all of us, when we're in distress, what's the first impulse of our soul? Is it to cry out to God? 
or is it to seek refuge and help somewhere else or with someone else other than God? God uses lots of means in how he brings help to us, and, and, and we ought to take advantage of those means. I mean, just very practically, if you have a medical emergency, it's good to call out to God, but it's okay, to, and it's good, and it's right to call 911 as well, okay? We do them both. They're means that God provides. But what's the impulse of your heart? What's the impulse of your life when there's a crisis? Is your first and only refuge God, or does he tend to be kind of a last resort if everything else doesn't work? He calls us to cry out to him and to run to him in desperate prayer and not to run to our own resources, but to run to him. Desperate times call for desperate prayers. And the first reality, the first plea is to cry out to God, plead to God for help now. That's what David does in verse 1. Well, that leads to a second plea, which, of course, these are all very uh, tied together. A second plea that we see in verses 2 and 3, and it is this. Plead for God to deal with your enemies now. Plead with God, plead for God to deal with your enemies now. Now, again, we don't know the specific enemies that David is facing. Most likely, the, uh, his son Absalom and those who had banded with him in revolt and opposition to David. But listen to what he says, verses 2 and 3. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, aha, aha. And that sense of aha, aha, it's a, it's, a, it's a term, it's a phrase of scorn. It's a phrase of mocking. It's a kind of the sense of, of somebody looking and going, ah, too bad, too bad. Look at you, look at you. It's exactly what the crowd did to Jesus as he was on his way to the cross, jeering and mocking and scorning and essentially saying, aha, aha, you saved others. Let's see if you can save yourself. There's that arrogant, evil kind of an attitude. And that's what David was facing. And he's saying, oh God, turn it back on them. Turn it back on them. Let them be ashamed. Let them know confusion. Let them know dishonor and shame. And so he's under siege and you see what he's doing. He's not taking matters into his own hands, right? He's pleading for God to intervene and pleading for God to deal with his enemies. Now, it's interesting here that David is not praying for God to kill his enemies. There are other places in other psalms where that's exactly what he's praying. They're called imprecatory psalms, praying for God to bring judgment, decisive, full, total judgment upon his enemies. But rather, he's praying for them to know shame and confusion and dishonor. And I think there's an implicit sense within this that David's ultimately wanting them to repent, to come to the knowledge of God, his Savior, and to be saved. But he wants them to experience what they need to experience in order for that to happen. And he knows that only God can bring that about. And so he's pleading for God to deal with his enemies. He's not seeking his own revenge, but he is pleading for God to deal with his enemies. Now, there's many places that we see this similarly expressed. 
If you go back to Psalm chapter 7, we find another place earlier in David's life where he's praying in a good bit more detail for God to intervene and to bring judgment. Psalm chapter 7, I won't read the whole psalm, but let me pick it up in verse 6. And notice again how, how David is pleading, God, please act. You must act. You must do what only you can do. So verse 6, he says, Arise, O Lord, Yahweh, in your anger, lift up yourself against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you over it in return on high. He goes on in verse 8 and says, The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, according to the integrity that is in my heart. He's acknowledging that God searches and knows the hearts of everyone, including himself. And so he's laying his own soul bare before the Lord. He goes on to say, verse 9, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts. O oh, righteous God, my shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. And then he reflects upon how God deals with those who don't repent. And he's burdened for them. He says, verse 12, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. Even as David is expressing that, praying that, testifying to that, He's bolstering his faith, his trust, his hope that God will deal with his enemies and that God knows. And so then he closes out this psalm in verse 17 by saying, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. He's trusting God to do what only God can do in dealing with his enemies. And this again is reflected in Psalm 70 as well. Uh, Paul in Romans chapter 12, at the end of Romans chapter 12, he says, Don't repay anyone evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight and all. He says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And then he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And Paul's echoing these very things that we see exemplified in David's life. Again, many years ago when we lived in Southern California and the church that I ministered at for a number of years, uh, soon after I went there, I think within the first, I don't know, year or two or three that I was there, there was a young man who was, I think he was a freshman in college, and he had been in the church for years and years and years. He'd grown up in the youth group and uh, had professed faith in Christ, but there was no real evident fruit in his life. And as sadly can often happen with many young teenagers, young adults, he just was living a life of increasing rebellion. And uh, he was opposing his parents. They were a part of the church. They were, they were believers. And he was opposing them, rebelling against them. And they had, were constantly trying to deal with this and constantly trying to address these matters with him. And they had put certain boundaries upon uh, things he was to do and not do. And one of those had to do with he, he had a girlfriend and he wasn't supposed to go outside of a particular geographical area. And they were trying to maintain oversight in that way. 
Well, in God's providence, at one point on a particular night, he decided that he was going to rebel against what they had said. Now, at this time when this happened, we happened to have a visiting youth group that was visiting our church from another church that was on a summer musical tour ministry thing that they were doing that involved a couple of hundred kids. I mean, this was like a big thing. That's a whole story in and of itself. But they were staying at our church. And one particular night, they had a whole bunch of vans and, you know, all kinds of vehicles and all that. They decided that they're going to go down to one of the beaches in Southern California, about 45 minutes or an hour away from where we lived in Simi Valley, to Zuma Beach. Some of you might know Zuma Beach. Anyways, they decide they're going to go down there for the evening and have time and all of that. Well, lo and behold, in the midst of being down there, there is an automobile accident. Guess who it involves? One of the vans from the youth group visiting our church and this young man and his girlfriend who were rebelling against and violating the clear boundaries that his parents had set for them. Now, in God's kindness, nobody was seriously injured in the accident, but it was a graphic reminder, be sure your sin will find you out. I mean, what are the chances and the odds, you know, in the city of millions and millions and millions of people that this kid gets in an accident with a van from the youth group that's staying at our church where his parents are a part of? It was God's hand. And, and God used that dramatically in his life to wake him up and say, you can't play with God. You can't mock God. Your sin will find you out. Well, it's those kinds of realities I think David is trusting and praying for as he prays for God to work in the lives of his enemies. And as I alluded to earlier, ultimately for believers, our enemies are spiritual. Now, we know and we understand that, 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 that these spiritual realities become personified in other people. But Paul speaks of this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 and following, when he says this. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then he says, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul's acknowledging that the battles are ultimately spiritual. That's why we need to pray. That's why we need to be armed with the word of God and all of the truth and the blessings and the provision that God has given in Jesus Christ and revealed through his word, as Paul goes on to speak about then in the rest of chapter 6 there. Because even as we deal with other flesh and blood human beings who are often personifying opposition and rebellion and difficulty and, and whatever forms that may come, we need to be mindful. This is a spiritual battle. God, intervene. If you're facing opposition from another human being, that human being, if they're not a believer, or even if they are a professing believer, if they're operating outside of God's will, they are an instrument of Satan. They are allowing themselves to be, be duped by the schemes of the devil. Now, there are biblical ways, right ways, godly ways. That's why we pray. That's why we seek the Lord, because we realize this isn't just a flesh and blood issue. This is a spiritual battle. And that's what David is doing. That's what Paul is speaking of in Ephesians chapter 6. And it's a reminder that God will judge. God will do what God will do in his own way and in his own time. And we need to be faithful to what he calls us to. 
but he will wet his sword and he will ready his bow. And with those who persist in unrepentance and hardness of heart, uh, we learn in James chapter 4, verse 7, God's opposed to the proud. It literally means he goes to war with the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. And so David is seeking God to deal with his enemies. And again, I think, at least in this instance, not ultimately destroying them, but bringing them to a place of conviction that would lead to repentance and would lead ultimately to life. So David pleads for God to help him now. That's his first plea. Second of all, he pleads for God to deal with his enemies now. But then there's a third plea we see with David, which is significant and instructive. In verse 4, he pleads for God to help his people now. He pleads for God to help his people now. And so notice how this broadens to a, to a corporate context and regard for all the people of God. So he says in verse 4, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And may those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, here's David in the, in the thick of, of flooding distress. Again, that he's described at the beginning of Psalm 69, like he's going under. The water's up to his neck. He's, he knows he's going under. And so he's desperate for himself, and yet he's mindful of God's purposes among all of his people. And even in what David himself is experiencing, he's longing for God to be revealed as great. And so that God's people, those who seek him, he's talking about those who love the Lord and seek the Lord and depend on the Lord and want to obey the Lord and magnify the Lord. He's saying so that they would rejoice in and be glad in you. He wants people to delight in God and to declare his praise all that more, all the more, even through what he gives example of, of of God's deliverance. Now, most of us, at least I know I would, if I'm in a desperate situation, and as I often am feeling in a desperate situation, I might just skip verse 4. You know, I'm I'm okay with verse 1. I'm okay with verses 2 and 3. I can come right back to verse 5 and pleading for God's help for myself, but often I'm not thinking in a broader context. But see, this points us to God's purposes, God's design. Any trial, any distress, any struggle, any difficulty we're going through It concerns us. It involves us. It has to do with God's work in us, but it's not just about us. God wants to refine us. God wants to purify us. God wants us to to be all the more dialed into and aligned with him and his purposes and his glory and to the end that his people would all the more delight in and praise the Lord. It's interesting if you go back to Psalm 40 just for a moment. This earlier psalm in David's life where David is experiencing distress and likewise is seeking the Lord. Look at what he says at the beginning of the psalm, verses 1 to 3. And he's reflecting upon God's faithful deliverance, but then by the end of the psalm, he's in distress again. So again, there's this ongoing reality of of, of facing trials. But in verse 1, he says, I waited patiently for Yahweh. I waited patiently. That's a key. He says, he inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up 
from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, and he made my steps secure. He's put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in Yahweh. Now, David, of course, was a king. He was a prominent person, well-known. But for any of us, we have circles of influence, don't we? In our families, in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, and, and in a lot of other arenas as well. And David is acknowledging that even God, as you've delivered me and you've put a new song in my mouth, as I've learned to wait patiently for you, many others will see and will fear and will put their trust in the Lord. And I think there he's not only thinking about the people of God who already are trusting the Lord, he's thinking about those who are unbelievers. So there's an evangelistic regard for how God would deliver him in a way that would help his people. And so David is praying in this way, and this is bound up in his plea. He sees the bigger picture. He recognizes that God does know, does care about him and his circumstances and his own soul, his own life but he knows there's a bigger purpose at work as well for the people of God. And he knew that God was all sufficient. He's burdened, you see, for God's purposes, God's purposes to be furthered in all of God's people. So he's not just concerned for his own personal safety and comfort and deliverance, as legitimate as that is, but he's increasingly burdened for God's purposes for all people to praise and honor him to trust him, to delight in him, and to declare his praise all the more. He knew that God was all sufficient. Now, part of what this means, dear brother and sister in Christ, and any man or woman here, what this means is that that you are not alone, that God is doing more than just the realities of the circumstances in your own life. He has a bigger, more eternal picture It doesn't mean he doesn't care about you. He cares intimately, personally, deeply, fully, like no one else can. Only God knows the depth. Only God can be your all-sufficient shepherd in the midst of whatever you're facing. But you're not alone. It's interesting in 1 Peter chapter 5, at the end of that letter, the whole letter, Peter is exhorting believers to persevere in the grace of God within the midst of hard, fiery trials, he describes them, that they're experiencing. And they're facing all kinds of things. But listen to what he says near the end of the book in 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. See, notice how he's highlighting the spiritual nature of the enemies. He's a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He says, verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Think, well, why does Peter say that? Because he wants them to understand what you're facing, while it is unique, personal, difficult, and God cares intimately about it in your own life, you're not the only one suffering. There's others who are suffering in the same ways. Maybe not the exact same details, but in the same ways. He wants you to know that you're not alone, and that God is at work, and that God is faithful. So, beloved, these are the pleas that we see from David. And this is why desperate times call for desperate prayers. 
Plead for God to help you now. Plead for God to deal with your enemies now. That's okay to have that sense of urgency. And plead for God to help his people now. There's an urgency. And bound up within that is a willingness, hard as it is, to wait. To wait on God. I mentioned at the beginning in talking about the 911 system that the working assumption, of course, is that when you call, there's real help on the other end of the line. And you and I know that sometimes that help doesn't come as quickly as we might want it to. And oftentimes with God, we seek him, we pour out our soul to him, we plead to him, we we cry out with a screaming sense of urgency, and nothing seems to happen. Well, what then? I think the answer is keep pleading in faith. Keep pleading in faith. And I think this is implicit to what David says in verse 5. I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Yahweh, do not delay. David's acknowledging, God, I got nothing. I'm poor. I'm needy. I have no resources I'm waiting on you. And again, even with what we see David expressing in Psalm 69 and what we hear him go on to express in Psalm 71, there's a longer-term aspect to waiting on the Lord. That's why he would say at the beginning of Psalm 40, I waited patiently on the Lord. Now, if you take time to read Psalm 69, Psalm 70, Psalm 71, one of the things that you'll see and hear are realities and experiences that are ultimately culminated and fulfilled in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll hear things that are echoing that. And I think David even knew. He didn't know the full details, but understood that the things that he was experiencing and the things that he was declaring were typologically foreshadowing the reality of what would happen with the greater king, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his own suffering. And in his own death, suffering unto death, and yet confident of the resurrection. And that's the basis of hope. That's the basis of hope and confident expectation that the Lord Jesus who has lived and died and risen from the dead and now is ascended in the right hand of the Father in heaven, he is the faithful refuge and the one who opens the door for us to come before God's throne of grace, as the writer of Hebrews 4 says, to find mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It's in Christ and through Christ, the greater David, that we have hope. And so even if we cry out to God in the way that David does in Psalm 70 and a few days go by and nothing happens or a few weeks go by and nothing happens or a few months or a few years or maybe your entire life goes by and nothing seems to happen, what's the object of hope? God, even if I die in this, I know I will rise from the dead in Christ because I'm in Christ. Because you have put your love and your favor upon me in Christ. You've forgiven my sins in Christ. You are my hope. You are my help. And we trust God. And so we keep pleading in faith. And day by day, moment by moment, that's what the Lord calls us to. There's an old spiritual song. I've mentioned this a number of times as well. Maybe later you can look it up. It's a great song. Uh, But the line, the refrain of the song simply says this, referring to God. He may not come when you want to, 
but he's always right on time. He may not come when you want him, but he's always right on time. And when you're in a desperate crisis and pleading with God, then it becomes a matter of are you going to trust God and his timing or are you going to reject and rebel and run to something other than God? See, that's where the front line of the battle of faith is, to be seeking the Lord. Yes, utilizing the means that he provides and thanking him for that, but fundamentally trusting and seeking him. You see, David confidently pleaded and expected God to deliver him from his enemies because he had already come to trust and know God as the deliverer from his sin. That's why he says in verse 4, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. Do you love God? Do you love the salvation that he's given that we know even more fully than David did through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because he has saved us from our sin, beloved, we can trust him to save us, to meet us, to help us, to answer us, to do what he would do in whatever kinds of crises and difficulties he ordains for us. So the point of application for all of this is pretty self-evident, isn't it? Pray. Pray. Why don't you plan, even this afternoon, carve out whatever it may be, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 40 minutes, maybe an hour. Get on your face before God. Literally, lay down. Put a couple of pillows under yours. Just seek the Lord in a concentrated way. If it doesn't work this afternoon, do it another time. I mean, if you're not able to do it, do it. But seek the Lord. We so often shortchange God's purposes in bolstering our faith. He may not change our circumstances, but he will meet us and change and strengthen and help us to believe and to persevere and to keep trusting and to keep seeking and to keep looking to him. That's why we pray when we gather on Sunday mornings. That's why we're going to pray when we gather tonight in our members meeting because we are under assault. We are under siege. That's true for every Christian generally in Christ. Satan hates us. He hates Jesus. He hates God's work. He hates God's glory. He hates God's goodness. That's true in a general sense. It's certainly true always for us as a local church. It's certainly true always for us as believers. That's why we pray. We pray individually. We pray together. And we pray because, beloved, desperate times call for desperate prayers. So let me pray and we'll be done. Lord, we thank you that you are gracious, that you are merciful, that you are a faithful refuge. And you haven't just given us a little, a little tweet or a little soundbite. You've given us a book that is filled with the knowledge of you, that we might know you and trust you and live in the riches of all of your provision in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know as your word declares, really, for anyone who is outside of trusting Christ, who has not come to faith in Christ to know the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with you, there's a very real sense they don't have a prayer at all. But you welcome a prayer that says, Lord, forgive me my sin. Lord, I need you. Lord, I want to call upon you. I want to confess and I want to forsake my sin. I want to, I want to be changed. God, thank you that you welcome such prayers. Thank you that even if you bring shame and confusion and dishonor to your enemies, your intent is not ultimately to destroy, but to save. 
And Lord, may that be true for anyone here who is not yet saved, who has not yet come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. And for those who have, oh God, help us, strengthen us. Lord, may we ever look to you and not run to false refuges, be they other people, other things, other experiences. But may we have hearts like David that are desperate to seek you in desperate times. Lord, we thank you for your word. Bless it to us for your purposes. In Christ's name, amen and amen.